Psalm 73. We are looking at the, the psalm in its entirety. A lot of this is descriptive of how the psalmist was feeling, what he was experiencing, all of that. And so uh, we will look at a number of different things within this psalm. This is, this is indeed a psalm like many others that contrast the righteous and the wicked. Very, very similar to Psalm 37 that we read. Very similar uh, in its content as well to Psalm 49. Uh, there's some elements there of Psalm 50 to look at. But this is one that uh, is really genuine uh, when it comes to the experience of the believer. When it comes to the struggles that we experience as we view the world, as we see what seems to be the wicked prospering, the wicked being able to carry out their evil, their wickedness, and it seems as if there is nothing that is being done. When we see things like recently what has been going on with just the, the blatant evil of killing children uh, so violently, it, it tends to anger us. It tends to just enrage us that nothing is happening. Nothing is being different. It's, it's like the Lord is not working. He's not, he's, he's not intervening. Sometimes those thoughts can come into our minds. When we begin to have those struggles and we wonder, where's the justice? What is anybody going to do here? Look at these ones that are carrying out uh, such atrocities. What do we do? They live such arrogant lives, the wicked. What, what shall we do when we have times in, in our history or, or times in... Uh, times in our own nation, in the world, in which it seems that God is allowing the wicked to prosper for a season, perhaps to bring judgment upon a nation, to bring judgment upon a people, but still the struggle is there even though we acknowledge such truths. We look at our own nation, for example. We see all the uh, just terrible things that are going on, the immorality that is so blatant, how it is that even those who make claim to be God's people can support such things as abortion, the murder of the innocent. We have such confusion when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to gender, and we think to ourselves, these are simple things. How, it, how is it that we can have all this confusion and this nonsense going on, and it seems the only ones that have a voice are them? There's not a voice given to those who are thinking rationally, at least not often. So we struggle with this. We have these inner conflicts. Perhaps there are things in our individual lives in which we are conflicted with uh, similar things. Perhaps people in our life, friends that we have, family that we have, they live such a carefree life. And we wonder to ourselves, perhaps as the psalmist does, I'm over here trying to discipline myself for godliness and, and I'm going through such anguish of my soul because of what's going on in my own life and I look at them and they experience nothing of this. Surely I have kept my faith in vain. Very similar to the words of the psalmist here. We think sometimes we, we can get off track in this way. Bitterness can build up within our hearts wondering why it is we struggle so much when it seems the wicked, the very enemies of God, don't seem to struggle. Bitterness, uh, anger, being resentful. What is the answer to these, these dilemmas, these, these things that perplex us, uh, that causes such things in our lives? Well, this is where the psalmist comes in. This is one of the most honest psalms. Uh, that we find here because he asks the questions that we want to ask. He makes the statements that we want to make because we want to know, what do we do? How can this be? He gets angry at the very same things that anger us. He experiences that anguish in his soul, believing his obedience to the Lord amounts to nothing. But as he reasons through his anguish, through his bitterness and through his anger, he really begins to see the reality of how things truly are. 
and when you see the reality of how things truly are, then that's where the strength of the Lord comes in. That's where the comfort comes in. The peace that surpasses all understanding when we see the reality of the wicked as we see the reality of who God is. We see the reality of his people. These things do indeed bring peace to our hearts and clarity of mind and confidence in the Lord. So I pray that as we work our way through this, this psalm, that this will indeed be an encouragement to all of us as we see the things that go on in our day and yet remember the sovereign God whom we serve, who is altogether good and good to his people. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. We are looking at Psalm 73, reading the psalm in its entirety. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. God's word says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness, the imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression, they speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is their knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long, and chastened every morning. If I had said... I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused. You will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far off from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you, Father, that you have provided all things for us in your word. All that we need to know for faith and life is contained here in your word. And in this passage specifically, it helps to guide us in our struggles. Guide us as we see the wicked carrying out evil schemes and atrocities. Father, we pray that as we work our way through here, then indeed you will remind us, remind us of who you are, of your goodness, of your greatness, of your majesty, of your holiness, of the terror that you bring, Father, when you are risen up against your enemies. Father, bring peace to our hearts and give us boldness and confidence as we face the world and face the, the evil of our own day. May Christ be magnified and may the Spirit of God do a mighty work within us tonight. Be honored among your people. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated.
So again, this is one of the Psalms that is very similar to others with much of its content. Again, like Psalm 37, for example, there are some correlations there. There is much agreement with what the one says compared to the other. It's, it's very similar to, as you look at Psalm 1, you have Psalm 1 that makes a number of, of truth statements. But then as that truth is, is played out within the life of the believer, you have Psalm 73 that has to work through those particular truths and be reminded of those as we look at the experience of our everyday life. This psalm begins, this is a psalm of Asaph. This psalm begins really with his conclusion. The conclusion is given at the beginning to let us know where he's going to end up. But the rest of that is the journey and the struggle that he had to endure in order to come to the conclusion that he gives us at the beginning of this. He says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's the conclusion. That's that's where he's working to. But before that, before we get to that, that part, we have to see the inner conflict that was going on in the psalmist. Now imagine this. This is a man of God whom God is using to pen his very words. This is the word of God. We recognize that uh, the spirit moved upon men and they wrote as, as God gave them utterance as the scripture tells us. We recognize that all scripture is God breathed, that God is the author and God is using this man in order to pen this particular song that's not only sung by his people, but that is also an, such an encouragement to all believers in all ages. And yet you see the inner struggle of this man of God. He says, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Perhaps he's thinking of not necessarily apostatizing because we recognize that true believers cannot apostatize. We recognize that we are preserved in the hand of God and, and that God not only preserves us, but then causes us to persevere in life. But at the very same time, there is that truth in which you begin to look at the wicked. You begin to look at the lives of others and think to yourself, they're probably much better off than me. Look at them and look at what I have to endure. And we get those thoughts in our minds. And he says, in that kind of a setting, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Almost had fallen into perhaps that kind of thinking. He says, here it is. I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Envious of the enemies of God. Now, he's going to come to the right conclusion and he's going to reason through all, all of this in order to find the true peace and comfort and confidence in the Lord. But think of where he's starting here. I was envious of the arrogant, of the very enemies of God. Now, how can he say such a thing? Well, it's not very difficult for us to see uh, where he's coming from. I mean, just think for uh, just think for a moment of all the things that go on within the nation. How much easier would the lives of each one of us be if we just said, "Just do your thing, live however you want to live, and you'll hear nothing from us." It'd be easy, much easier to be in almost in, in agreement with what they're doing. Be like, "Hey, you want to do that? That's fine." How much easier of a life would we be able to live as far as our interaction with the wicked? Because they're not in trouble as we are. They're not in anguish of their souls as we are. They, they're, they're not so sorrowful because they recognize their shortcoming before a holy God. They're not beating themselves up often because of their failures, knowing that they, have, that, that, that they have offended our God by what we have said or what we have done. They don't experience any of those things. They live such a carefree life. They do whatever they want. And it seems as if in the moments that they're doing everything, anything that they want to do, there's no repercussions there. There's no consequences. 
And the psalmist here, Asaph, had deluded himself into believing that the way of the wicked was something to be desired. Something to be jealous of. He desired to possess that same advantage that he believed that they had. Have you experienced that? You have that kind of a struggle? How much easier would it be just to do what they do, be like them? Again, that's a delusion. But sometimes when we're not thinking rightly, those are the thoughts that come into our minds. For Asaph, he was coveting their lives or perhaps their way of life. Being resentful of his own, his own struggles that he endured. He says he saw, he was envious of the wicked because he saw the prosperity of the wicked. He saw their well-being. They seemed to thrive. The immoral, the enemies of God seemed to thrive. He saw their well-being. He saw their contentment in everything that they did. Then he begins to list some of these things. What things were he, was he seeing? Now this could have been in uh, those that were in Israel who were indeed apostate, as I believe that um, some of the, the language here is going to give us as you look down in verses 10 and 11. These could be those who are apostate within Israel. He could be referencing the heathen, the Gentiles. Seems to fit either one of those. But he began to see the well-being of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. Now, this word for pains, or some of your translations may say pangs. It could be that uh, they didn't have any mental anguish in the moments in which they died. They didn't experience the same kind of pain that perhaps that he saw others who were serving the Lord. Maybe they died uh, in such a way that it was very painful and endured much suffering. Maybe that's what he's looking at there. Their body is fat. They're like well-fed animals. They lack nothing. They are, when you're looking at all of these things, they're not in trouble as other men. They are free from all the troubles that we face. We ask the question, where are the consequences for this? Why isn't, why isn't justice being rendered to them? It doesn't seem to be occurring. They seem to get away with everything. And because they want for nothing, because they lack nothing, and because they are able to carry out the very things that they do, he says that pride is their necklace and the garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imagination of their heart run riot. They are able to just keep going and keep pursuing the things that they desire. And it seems as if they get away with everything. They mock and they wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. That's an easy one for us to look at even in our own day. You have the LGBT movement. And, you know, it seems as if, as some theologians have pointed out, that secularism is really rearing its ugly face and showing you exactly who it is. This is who we are. We've played nice for so many years, and now you're just going to see the ugliness of who we are. We're coming for your children, they say. They speak against the Lord. They mock him. The imaginations of their heart run riot. I mean, who is, who is then going to be able to, to pull them in? Once you start down the slippery slope, as what we have seen... Once you start with the sexual revolution and then you begin to not only have heterosexual promiscuity, but then you have the homosexuality that begins to take hold. And then you have the transgenderism that's going and it just, who's, who's going to stop it? At what point can you say, okay, enough's enough. Well, it isn't going to happen apart from the Lord. It isn't going to happen from any unbeliever trying to put a stop to it because now, well, they identify as this. So I can identify as this. Now you have people who are pedophiles also wanting their rights. I mean, who can rightly tell them uh, no? Well, the immoral can't do it. The unbelieving can't do it because they've opened the door for it. So it seems as if the imaginations of the hearts of those even in our own day are, are just have, have, don't have any restraint. 
But that's exactly what we find in Romans 1 when God judges a people. You don't give thanks. You begin to think yourself wise. You're really becoming a fool. You're turning and serving the creature and the creation itself. What is God going to do? Hand you over to a depraved mind. Do those things that are not proper, and that's exactly where we're at in our own nation. So the imagination has no restraint. It keeps going, and it keeps going, and we see that. So, you know, sometimes we wonder, what are we going to wake up to today? What's going to be new today? What kind of nonsense is going to be in the, the news today? But they mock and they wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They speak arrogantly. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Their words are proud beyond measure, as one man said. They have elevated themselves above all. And yet, th these are the very ones that call evil good and good evil. These are the ones who claim to be the beacons of morality and uh, the wise of the wise. It's nonsense. Silly things. But they speak very arrogantly. They even have their admirers. That's the interesting part. You have those that support such things, perhaps them, they themselves not necessarily participating, but they give hearty approval, as Romans 1 says. And those types of people and those who are committing such acts, they have, they have their admirers. Therefore, his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. One theologian is pointing out that these are those who perhaps have apostatized, who have then left the fear of the Lord and turned to the very things that they are seeing among the other wicked. He says, one, one man says, they gain adherence from those who leave the fear of God and turn to them. What verse 10 is speaking of. They have their admirers. They have people that will follow them. They have people that will defend them. I remember on uh, Twitter two years ago, three years ago, something like that, there was uh, a particular celebrity who had made such statements about abortion and this, that, and the other. And so there was a long thread of people just going back and forth. And I had just simply asked one question, didn't make a statement, asked a question. And it was along the lines of, what is your moral compass by which you determine what is right and wrong? And there were numerous people that flooded to my Twitter and just began to say everything that they could over asking one question. Because you dare to make a statement or make a question in, in conflict of something, of something that their celebrity said or the one whom they love so much. It's amazing that people will defend people that will never know their name. These people that they admire won't have a clue that they exist. But these people will follow them. And here's the questions that they ask. They don't necessarily say that there is no God in this particular context. No, 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 no. They say something different. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? These are perhaps those who make such claims to believe in some form of God, some idea of God, presenting themselves to be spiritual in some way, and yet the very God whom they serve, though they may claim that's even the Christian God, the God that they serve is very indifferent to anything else that is going on. Indifferent to the way of life that they approve of or perhaps that they are practicing themselves. The very evil that they carry out with the atrocities that they desire to do because the imaginations of their, of their hearts, they run riot. 
So they don't come out and say, well, there is no God. No, no, no. They ask, does God really know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Is he even keeping track of this? He, he probably doesn't even care. But what does the psalmist say? Behold, these are the wicked. It is the wicked who believe that God is indifferent to their actions, indifferent to the words, indifferent to the, the very things that they promote. And yet many, this isn't just speaking of people again who are maybe identifying as a different religion or something along that line or just claiming to be spiritual. These are probably those who are claiming that Yahweh is their God. And we can know that for certain because we know that in our own day, we have such people under the Christian umbrella that claim that Yahweh is their God, that Christ is the one whom they serve, and yet they promote and encourage the immorality that is blatantly against the very law of God. I was meeting with our state delegate the other day. He and I had a meeting and we were talking together. And he said, you know, it is amazing to me. The people that claim to be Christians that support such immoral practices as abortion. And they will say, it doesn't matter. Use various ways of trying to justify it. It's a clump of cells or other arguments. And yet these are the ones who would claim to be believers. They think God is indifferent to any of these things. You hear politicians promoting that same idea like, I don't bring my religion into politics. Well, you better bring your religion into politics because that is the only means that you have of having an objective form of truth. You don't put it up on a shelf. But when they say things like that, what are they saying? God's only concerned about what I do in my time of worship, not in my everyday life. What does that do? That's saying, Christ is only my Lord when I'm in the church, not when I'm outside the church. He's indifferent to these other things. And so as he looks and he says, these are the wicked, these are the ones who are at ease, these are the ones who increase in wealth, then he begins to look at himself. These are the experiences that the psalmist is, is, is having in these moments as he's looking out over the wicked. He says, surely, in vain, I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Surely, everything that I am doing in service to the Lord has been for nothing. Look at my struggles. Look at the anguish that I go through daily. Look at everything that goes on in my life in comparison to the one who claims to be the enemy of God. I'm stricken all day long. I'm chasing every morning. This is the experience of the believer, oftentimes. Sometimes we are in anguish of our souls because of, again, maybe our failure. How it is that we have uh, done the very things that we didn't want to do is what Paul says, instead of doing the things that we ought. And we recognize that when we do so, that we are offending a holy God and we think to ourselves just how low that we really are because Christ died for our sins and this is how we repay Him. And so there's anguish of our souls, there's guilt, there's sorrow, there's all those things that we experience and we look out over the wicked and like, there's nothing. There's nothing. But as he looks at his own life, as he looks at his struggles, as he's contemplating all of these things, he begins to see the reality of things. Because he makes this statement in verse 15. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus. If I had said, I'm going to speak like them. I'm going to do like them. He says, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I would have not only betrayed you, I would, have, I would have perhaps even undermined the faith of others. Do you know that sometimes when, it's, it, let me say this, it's good to bear one another's burdens. Thereby we fulfill the law of Christ is what Paul says in Galatians 6. It's good 
to, to speak to one another and to, to share what's going on and share our struggles and all of this sort of thing. But when we say it in such a way that we're just making statements before an unbelieving world or we're making statements that are so public that those with perhaps weak faith that are enduring difficult times that we can cause them to fall into despair as well. We can affect how, how they are trying to persevere through their difficulties. We can cause others to stumble sometimes by what we say in the manner in which we say it. And as one theologian said, sometimes it's better just to keep your mouth closed when it comes especially to a public forum. When it comes to our genuine struggles that we have and the sins that haunt us in our life, yes, it is good. It is good to share those struggles with, with others in order to help us through that. But when we're just angry or we're bitter and we just make these statements out in the open, we don't know perhaps what kind of influence that we have on others and how we may affect them. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I would have betrayed you and I would have betrayed them. But then he looks at the, the answer, the resolution. You have this inner conflict that was going on and as he looks over the wicked, as he sees all of these things going on in their lives in comparison to his own, he begins to think more clearly now. And it's so interesting to me as to where he began to think clearly. He says, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight, trying to reason through all of these things that he struggled with, all the experiences of his life, as he is indeed bitter, as he is angry. He says, it was troublesome in my sight. Until... Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. So all this time, it seems as if he is struggling within himself. He is struggling alone. He's trying to reason through these things alone. He's getting angry. He's getting bitter. He's jealous of the way of the wicked. And it wasn't until he came into the corporate assembly, into the sanctuary of God... That he begins to think rightly. That is amazing to me. You know, so often we try to uh, we try to reason within ourselves, and we try to get through our own problems by ourselves, and and not share those with others. And and it's always something that we try to do alone. And I know that because I am so guilty of this. If I am enduring, you know, struggles in myself or sorrows, or guilt, or many of these other things, I keep it to myself, I don't share it with anyone, and I just think to myself, I'll just deal with it. I'm just going to deal with it. But when you try to do that, this is when you're not thinking rationally. You're not thinking biblically. You begin to start thinking like them. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, until I came into the corporate assembly, in the place in which the majesty and the splendor of God is put on display, where I am reminded of who He is, then I perceived their end. You know, sometimes we don't think maybe of what kind of an, an effect it has to be within the assembly of believers. And the the how vital it is to our Christian walk to be in the assembly of believers. It's not just coming to, to sit and to hear someone speaking up here and to think, okay, I'm making, I'm putting in my time, I'm sitting here for an hour, and then I'm doing right. It's about us coming together to encourage one another, to love one another, and it is to engage our minds into thinking, I don't care who's behind the pulpit. I want to know what it is that God has for me. I want to hear from the Lord. My heart is yearning to hear from the Lord. He knows exactly what I'm struggling with right now. I need to be fed by Him. I need to be nourished by Him. I need my soul to be at peace by Him. 
And then as we come together and as we are sharing with one another and as we're hearing the word of God, it then affects us so greatly because it is a reminder. Yes, this is what you're enduring, but think of who he is. Don't forget who he is. Don't forget that God is altogether good. You know, Paul Washer, I think he was at a university and he had made a statement uh, to the assembly that he was speaking uh, before. And he says, I'm going to tell you the most terrifying truth that I know. Something along that line. I'm probably not saying it right, but it was something along that line. And everybody just waiting to hear. What is this truth that is so terrifying? Or what is this thing that is so terrifying? And he says, God is good. And that is the most terrifying truth. That God is good. Because if God is good, and you're not. Then we're looking at the justice of God being poured out upon you. It's because God is good that he renders right, righteous judgment. It's because God is good that he inflicts wrath against evildoers. And as we come into the sanctuary of God, and as we are reminded of the truth of who he is, we're reminded of the truth of Christ and all that Christ had done, then we begin to think rightly and clearly. Then, he says, I perceived their end. He struggled with his dilemma, but he found comfort. And the answers that he sought were found in the assembly. Again, because here, the majesty of God is remembered. The power of God is reflected upon. The goodness of God, the holiness of God, the providence of God, the kingship of God, the sovereignty of God. All of these things are, are brought back to our remembrance. So that we perceive the end. Of those that we once envied. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. He says. God will overtake the enemy suddenly. Unexpectedly. And not only will he overtake them. At a time in which they don't think that it's going to happen. But this isn't the end. They are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. He not only takes them out of the world, but think of the justice that is going to be inflicted upon them when he takes them out of the world. They are swept away by sudden terrors. Maybe not in the moment of their death. Death is going to take them at the moment that they don't think it's going to happen. But the terror part occurs after they take their last breath. The sudden terrors that, they, that will sweep, them, sweep over them occur after they take their last breath. Perhaps it seems as if there's no pains in their death. There's no mental anguish. Death will all of a sudden take them unexpectedly in a moment they don't think that it will come. And then terror will grip their heart because righteous judgment will be brought down upon them. And such righteous judgment, I mean, think of what he's saying here. He's saying, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Or some of your translations may say, you will despise their image. What is that talking about? You will despise their image? One writer says this, the idea is that what is left over after they die is a mere image of the wicked person's personality. The very remembrance of them, their words, their actions, the very things that they will be remembered for, the image that is still here, perhaps, even after they have gone, God despises even the mere image of what is left. And that is terrifying. Because if he despises the mere image, think of how he actually despises them individually. Because of their arrogance, because of their wickedness, because of wrongly, wrongly viewing who God is and teaching others. The very remembrance of them God despises. 
But look at the psalmist as he remembers this, this, this truth of the wicked. I mean, when you look in our, uh, in our nation, when you look around the world, and you see all of these things that are co- you know, going on and, and the things that make us angry and the things that make us bitter and, and all of that, things that have been happening recently, and we wonder where's the justice. The justice is coming, and the justice will be poured out. And that is the reality That's the reality of all of these things. When you see the wicked and you see how they speak and you see the arrogance of them, what does Psalm 37 say? The Lord laughs at them. And he will sweep over them with sudden terrors. When he, as the psalmist says, when he is aroused, when he is awakened, when he moves to action is the idea. But as the psalmist begins to contemplate all of that and he's coming back to understand truly who God is and this whole situation and how he was thinking, I mean, here's what he says. I mean, you can see true repentance on the part of the psalmist. He says, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, when I was convicted because of how I was thinking of all of these things, then I was senseless and arrogant or ignorant. I was like a beast before you. The way that I was thinking, how ridiculous was it? I was being senseless. One lexicon that I was looking at over this Hebrew word here, giving an example of what he's bringing out here, he's basically saying, I was stupid like cattle. That's what he was saying of himself as he was struggling all of that inner conflict, looking at the wicked. He said, I was stupid like cattle. I was senseless like a beast before you. But then he begins to look at the life that God has blessed him with. The things that God has given to him. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Even in the midst of Uh, The moments in which we are stupid like cattle, the Lord is still continually with us. And he's not let us go. He says, you've taken hold of my right hand. God didn't let him go. God didn't let him fall. The conflict he experienced was a true conflict within himself. But the Lord brought him back to remember. Almost like the prodigal son, he came to his senses, you could say. Your counsel will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. He enjoys the continued presence and the security that he has in God. God preserves him. The psalmist is clinging more and more to him because of his continued presence. He confidently yields himself to God's guidance. I don't understand how this can be, but I do recognize their end. So I humbly come into the presence of God. You lead me. You guide me. Yields himself to the wisdom of God. He rejoices in the end of his life. He says, afterward, you're going to receive me to glory. That's in direct contrast to what the wicked experience. We will receive the honor and the blessing of coming into the immediate presence of God to behold his glory. Except this time it's not just with eyes of faith. But to behold him. Afterward, we will be received to glory, he says. Whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. There's no comparison to him. And viewing all the things that he looked at in the life of the wicked, when he thinks about what that end is, when he thinks about the destruction that's coming, how they will perish in a moment when the Lord takes them, there's nothing to envy there. There's nothing to be jealous of there. Whom have I in heaven but you, and on earth I desire nothing 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The greatest gift is God himself. For behold, those who are far, who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. He basically says, you keep me near, and that's what I need. The wicked are far from, from God. But if you go back to his conclusion, God is good to Israel. God is good to his people. God is good to those who are pure in heart. That's the conclusion of all of this. As he begins to think of all these things, he thinks of the reality of the wicked. He begins to think of the blessed life that he has in the Lord himself, how the Lord is, is his refuge, that the Lord is the greatest gift in, in comparison to anything else on earth. There's, there's nothing that can compare to him. And when we begin to think of these things, he says, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. And what am I telling? I'm telling others that God is good to his people, to those who are pure in heart. Because he's been good to me. At times we are indeed perplexed. Why it is that things can seem to continue the way that they are. And it seems as if maybe God isn't intervening. In one sense we have to remember this, that that God not intervening as to how we think that he should uh, is in itself uh, just deceiving. It's deceiving to ourselves. He should do this. But are we really putting that out there to think that we would know better as to how things should go? When God brings judgment upon a people, he brings it to its intended end. And the great comfort that comes thereafter is when he judges a people, he brings it to its end, and then he brings healing. The solution to what we see today is God himself. God is doing the very thing that brings him the most glory. That will bring him the most glory among his people because it shouldn't just be that we look and we see the wicked being able to do this and that and whatever. And we think to ourselves, how can this be? Look at my struggle. It should be that when we see the things going on in our nation, for example, that we are seeing, we should see the righteousness of God's judgment being poured out. God is truly righteous and he is just and it is understood that he is righteous and just because the very things that are going on are the very things that he says happens when he judges a nation. God is acting. God is working. God is bringing judgment upon a wicked people. So it's not as if evil is running rampant without restraint. It's God saying, I'm going to give you exactly what you want. And it will implode on itself. Because that's what occurs throughout history. That's what has occurred. So God is working. God is doing. And as God brings these things to its intended end, and as he is bringing the wicked out of the world in the midst of all of these things, we remember their end. And we remember the blessedness that we have received in him to not be part of that group, but to be delivered from it that we would be received into his immediate presence when he takes us home. So there are things to look at in a different way rather than allowing our hearts to be embittered because of what we see. For God's righteous judgment is on display for us that we may look and see, oh God, you are working. Your will is being brought about and the wicked can do nothing to hinder what your hand is, has determined to do. In the immediate time, we indeed obey the Lord with confidence, with genuine thanks. 
And we seek to carry out what he has given to us, even in the midst of a judgment as this, that he would be honored among us and honored among those whom we are privileged to help pluck out of the fire, to be used to pluck out of the fire during this particular time, that we may tell them God is good to those who are pure in heart. You're not keeping your faith in vain. You're not keeping the innocence of, of your your heart, as he says there, the purity of your heart in vain. Serve the Lord with gladness, serve the Lord with confidence, and be bold. And know, just as the psalmist does, that the closeness of God is what we need in any given moment, in any given time, to help us think rightly, rationally, biblically. So and I pray that we would indeed do that. Even as Many things will probably be happening that will be even more nonsensical than what has already occurred. But God is ruling and reigning, and he will bring about his justice at the appointed time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you, Father, for the great comfort and encouragement that we receive from it, knowing that you are indeed ruling and reigning. All authority belongs to you in heaven and on earth. It's all yours. And that whatever your hand has determined to do, that is what will occur. For none can thwart your hand, thwart your will, or say to you, what have you done? Father, in the time that you have permitted us to be here in this world, at this time in history, help us, Lord, to be bold, to be courageous, to confidently speak your truth and not allow our hearts to be carried away by envying or being jealous of the wicked. Help us to remember what their end is and what you have privileged us to receive when we leave this world. Father, thank you so much for everything that Christ has done, that we may come into your presence, that we may be received by you, to be loved by you, to be adopted by you, to be part of the family of God. May you be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen. Thank you for your attention. You are dismissed.